episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods, and we've got some things to talk about today. We're going to talk to Kimberly Turner as a part of our Emerging Scholar series. We'll get to that in a moment. She's smart. Oh man, she's so smart, and I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Before we get to our conversation with Kimberly, though, there's some news in the conference world. Uh, the conference experience is down a conference this year. The Thomas R. Watson conference has been canceled. An update was sent out from the the team, the faculty there at the University of Louisville. So let's take a look at this. I'll read from the conference update. The first Thomas R. Watson conference on rhetoric and composition took place in 1996. Since that time, it's been our pleasure and privilege to host the conference every two years and gratifying to see it offer an opportunity for scholars from across our discipline to gather and exchange ideas about significant issues and current research. The Watson Endowment funds the conference in even-numbered years and a visiting professor in odd-numbered years. The Thomas R. Watson Endowment is sound and fully supported by the U of L faculty, English department. This semester, our graduate students are fortunate to be able to learn from our current visiting Watson professor, Dr. Giza Kirsch. During the past two decades, however, there have been changes in organizational structures and forms of support from a larger, the larger university that have made it increasingly difficult to organize a conference of this size effectively. Given these developments, we have decided not to hold the 2020 conference in the form it has followed in recent years and are not accepting proposals. We have decided as a faculty that it is an important time for us to reflect on the mission of the conference and perhaps rethink its structure going forward. These efforts may include a small planning symposium or conference next year to gather ideas and responses from colleagues in the field. We want to express our gratitude for the support of all our friends and colleagues who have attended the Watson Conference over the years. We look forward to working with you again in the near future. University of Louisville Rhetoric and Composition faculty. So... This was a bit of a, a big news day when this happened a couple of weeks ago, so I thought it was important for us to touch on it. And there's two things that I think uh, are important. First of all, that the Watson Conference is not dead. The Watson Conference is canceled this year, uh, but it looks like the planning team down at the University of Louisville has some smart ideas to listen to the community and part of a planning symposium and consider the different ways that this conference might look going forward. I guess that means in terms of format and structure, which I think is super cool. They have an opportunity really here to take this conference, reimagine it. And I guess I'm one for hyperbole sometimes. I mean, I host a podcast, take it to the next level. So while we won't be able to see you down in Louisville, and uh, we'll miss the conference this year. Hopefully, it comes back around. Conferences shouldn't die, but they should be reimagined. And, and I think that's what's happening here. So, Watson Conference team, we wish you the best. Hopefully, we'll be hearing some more things from you soon enough. Another conference going on right now, FEMRET 2019, just ended. So, I want to make sure... We wish all the good folks that were down at FEMRAT safe travels getting home. Hey, before you board the plane, download the podcast. Before you get in the car with your 
travel group for the road trip back to your university, download the podcast. Make sure you give us a listen. All right. Safe travels, FEMREC conference goers. All right. So let's jump into my chat with Kimberly. She's a fifth year PhD student in the RWL program at the University of Tennessee there in Knoxville. Her field of interest is writing program administration with a special emphasis on graduate student writing, and she's doing some super cool stuff with that. Before coming to UT, Kimberly taught composition courses at Florence Darlington Technical College and the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, as well as Francis Marion University. Although she has taught composition courses to a wide range of students, she particularly enjoys teaching first-generation and non-traditional students, and she is especially thrilled to be able to share her love of writing with her students at UTK. And here's my conversation with Kimberly Turner. Kimberly Turner. <laughs> oh my goodness. I can already tell this is going to be a fun conversation. <laughs> so you are a PhD student, uh, yes. PhD candidate, yes. better, better term, yes. um, with a concentration in rhetoric, writing, and linguistics yeah. at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Yep. That sounds pretty interesting. Uh, we're going to get to more about Knoxville in a few moments, but I do want to mention your dissertation title uh, and congratulate you for being in the middle of that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I love the name of, of, of your dissertation is why I want to emphasize it. Uh, why can't graduate students write, question mark, colon, making the case for transfer pedagogy in the University of Tennessee's graduate student programs? We're going to get into transfer a bit uh, more later, Kimberly, but let's start off first learning a little bit about your history. You got your Bachelor of Arts degree in English from uh, Francis Marion University, and you had a minor in gender studies. Where is Francis Francis Marion University? Francis Marion University is in my hometown of Florence, South Carolina, which is like this little small not small, but small-ish town on your way to Myrtle Beach. It's the stop everyone knows. It's midway on 95 from New York and Miami. So it's like a little interstate town, essentially. Um, but it has a really unique history in the Revolutionary War. Francis Marion was the guy they based the movie The Patriot on. So, like, everything in my hometown is named Francis Marion or Swamp Fox or something like that. So. Okay, interesting. And Florence, how many people live there in that interstate stop town? Like, maybe 35, 40,000. It's not a big town. It's not a teeny town, but it's not right. huge. Yeah. That's pretty cool. What drew you to gender studies as a minor? When I started my English degree, I knew that I would wanted to look more at Victorian studies and the Gothic. And so much of what they do in the Victorian and Gothic is really gender bending. So I decided to couple it with um, gender studies and particularly queer theory. So I could take a, a kind of a queer look at Gothic texts. Um, and so that was kind of the impetus for that. When you use a term like gender bending, what exactly do you mean there? There's a lot of um, there's a lot of characters like Jane Eyre, for example, who is you know prototypically f- feminine in a lot of the kind of Victorian standards, and then very much not so in a lot of ways. And sort of 
arguably she rescues Rochester in the end of the novel. So, you know, so, so things like that happen. And then there's sort of this, the, the sensationalist novels like Lady Audley's Secret, where you have Lady Audley, you know, who is this really scandalous character by Victorian terms. So, you know, so that's kind of, um, they were kind of breaking the rules of what was expected of sort of the angel in the home, sort of very um, domestic woman. Yeah. I got to admit, I don't know a whole heck of a lot about Victorian literature. Uh, so I don't have a question about it, but I do know Jane Eyre. Yeah, <laughs> I did, I did read. yeah everyone knows the big one. <laughs> <laughs> Is Victorian literature where you situated yourself as you moved into working on your master's degree at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte? Yeah. So when I was there, I was um, we don't specialize in literature there at all. But I took all of the um, Victorian lit classes that I could just like as a mini um, Jane Eyre, Jane Austen, Bronte, Dickens, anything I could get my hands on, you know, that was, um, and I fully intended to do that when I went into my PhD, and then my first year of my PhD program, I was reading Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens, and I realized that there's no part of me that wanted to teach it again. Like, I like to read it, but I didn't want to teach it ever. Okay. Um, fascinating and I had been teaching writing for years I got a job right out of college right out of my BA teaching at a tech school teaching developmental writing and I really loved it and I realized that my passion was not so much with um, literature as it was with writing and teaching people to write Um, so that was how I made the transition rhetoric and writing (laughs) I was going to say, I um, had a similar experience. You know, I did my MA in literature. I think I've talked about this on the podcast a little bit, so I won't indulge too much. But I will say it was the same thing for me. It was like I, I was I was much rather teach writing. It was about what I wanted to teach uh, and instead about what I wanted to read, which was a fascinating for me. I don't think it's exactly what you're saying, but I think that a lot of people who do transition into rhetoric ha- have a similar story. Yeah. And I had done in my MA, a lot of what we did was learn to teach, teach, um, because that's part of, that was part of the focus. So I had taken quite a bit of pedagogy um, Mm -hmm. in the MA as part of the program. So when I got to the PhD, I didn't feel terribly far behind um, in terms of catching up. So, you know, um, and we have our comps process where we have to read, you know, 8 million, (laughs) 8 million texts. (laughs) 8 million and one. (laughs) Um, so I, yeah, so that's how I kind of got into the comp world. You mentioned that you taught as an, as an instructor at Florence Darlington Technical College. Yes. Uh, And and what was that? You mentioned you enjoyed that experience. Uh, What about that was enjoyable? Um, so Florence and Darlington is kind of the, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Darlington racetrack, but that's that's the only thing I've heard of. (laughs) (laughs) Quick. Quick aside, I'm from Birmingham, Alabama, so I've heard of all the race courses. (laughs) You know NASCAR. Okay. I know know what you mean. (laughs) So I, so it's a track too tough to tame. I grew up kind of in between those two places. So um, there's a, there's a technical college there, um, the two-year university, and to teach developmental writing in South Carolina, you don't actually need to have an um, advanced degree because you're teaching um, just basic, 
grammar skills at that point. And so a lot of my students were non-traditional. A lot of them were first gen. A lot of them were grew up in extremely rural areas um, where public education is not that well funded. So it was a really eye-opening experience, but it was also just really rewarding because I got to see them move from my classes into the 10, I think it was 111 at that school, 111s and 112s that they were taking to help them get their degrees. And and they were some of the best students I've had. They were really grateful and really thoughtful people. So I really enjoyed it. Just from knowing you just briefly and reading over some of your materials and writings, I know that that's something that's important to you and that you like working with, with first-gen college students and non-traditional students. How, what draws you to them, do you think? Uh, I think because, so my um, parents both grew up pretty um, poor, <laughs> just poor, yeah. and they were both first-gen college students, um, and the only kids in their in their families to go to college, so they um, worked really, really hard to get to the places where they are now, and to help me get to college, you know, um, and I think that it's rewarding to be able to help other people get there. Um, I also find those students, they work really hard. They may not be, like, the best, you know, um, in terms of, like, skilled writers, but they work really hard and they want to succeed the most. And that's really um, something that I enjoy watching in a classroom. I could not. I If I had a drum, I would beat it, uh, Kimberly. <laughs> that, I agree with you so much. And as someone who, um, and I'm not a first-generation college student, but it skipped a generation. Yeah. Like my grandparents went to college, but my parents didn't go to college. Um, so I, I, I struggle at saying I'm a first-gen college student because I'm not. But I have the same thing. Like, I, I, I agree with you. First-gen college students work hard, right? And non-traditional students work hard. And that's what it's all about and seeing that. So I echo that, what you're saying, and, and believe believe in that 100%. Yeah. Um, so you're in North Carolina, Charlotte, right? You're going to get your MA there. And I, I noticed that you got to go back to Francis Marion as an adjunct. Yes. And not a lot I saw, not a lot of people get to do that, get to go back to their, their home institution or, or bachelor's institution as an instructor. How was that experience? <laughs> so it was a little bit weird because all the people that had been my professors, I was suddenly calling like by their first name, which was just right. odd. <laughs> um like it was, you know, it was a really great way to bridge the gap between my MA and my PhD. It gave me a little bit of um, a break, which was nice because after your MA, you're tired to say the least. Yes. Um, yes. And it just got me, helped me get some more experience teaching under my belt and teaching when I wasn't part of an MA program where I had someone kind of um, – not not looking over my shoulder, that sounds negative, but um, being kind of a caretaker. <laughs> so, you know, I was doing a lot of the work on my own. I was planning on my own. I was grading on my own. Um, so, and it really gave me a lot more confidence in that regard. And I, you know, ha- had known the staff for a long time at that point. So I felt really comfortable going to them and saying, I have this issue or I need help with this thing. So that was great. Yeah. So in 2015, uh, or maybe 2014, you made a pretty big decision to get out of the adjunct world and and go for the PhD, Uh, and you landed in a neighboring state, uh, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, but I'm sure that there were some uh, differences, perhaps, in the communities there in South Carolina and Tennessee. Uh, Yeah, 
So um, I am from a coastal community um, that where the, the beach and the beach lifestyle is very much part of my world. And so when I moved up here, uh, it's just the complete inverse. It's mountain culture. Everything is, you know, um, Appalachian oriented. So that took a minute to get used to. And um, one of the things that took a really long time to get used to was that the student population here is primarily white, um, which just is just a kind of a feature of Appalachia um, sure. and East Tennessee. So that was completely different for me because um, where I'm from in South Carolina, it's old slave country, old plantation country, you know, it's, there's, it's quite a mixed crowd. Um, so I, I had to get used to not seeing as many, um, people of color, which was very strange, very strange. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, um, I wonder the, the things I know about Tennessee, um, the university of Tennessee, I guess I should say, uh, for the most part, I spent a little bit time on the campus. Is that it's a nice, it's a nice campus. It's lovely. And Knox, yeah. It's a lovely campus, and tenant and Knoxville <laughs> seems to be relatively hip. Oh yeah, um, it's situated between Asheville and and Nashville, so we get a lot of shows that come through there, and a lot of just like cool music acts and stuff, and um, a lot of comedians when they're going in between places will stop off in Knoxville because you know it's. A, it's kind of halfway between both of those cities. So we get a lot of like um, cool stuff that comes through here and it's a pretty young town. Um, and there's, like I said, there's things to do. So like you can go to Nashville, yeah. go to a football game or see a country music concert. You can go to Asheville if you want to see more um, indie show or something. But yeah, it's, um, and, it, and we're like 30 minutes from the Smokies. So you can hop up there and hike or do anything like that, that you want um, very easily. So that, that's nice. <laughs> that, and that's, yeah. And it's beautiful in the fall. This is our time. This is our time to shine. <laughs> have the le- have the have the leaves tra- ch- uh, changed down there yet? I was just in my yard the other day taking pictures like a like a real tourist. <laughs> I got out my Nikon this morning and charged the battery because I've got to go to campus later and the trees have turned. So I'm right there with you, Kimberly. I'm a tourist too in my own backyard. I know that you have uh, some publications out there, Kimberly, from your time working in in literature. Uh, a couple of them. Uh, one of them struck stuck stuck out to me on your CV: queering the single white female, girls, and the interrupted promises of the twenty-something. And I uh, know that that uh, focused on HBO's Girls, a show that I'm a fan of. So this is totally an, an indulgence. Uh, <laughs> but, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the genesis of that project, what it was, and then. Is it something that you've left behind or is it something that you're still interested in? Stuff like that. Um, so I was writing for a queer theory course in my MA and that was, a f- I wrote a first draft of the paper for that class and girls was in it's just height at that time. Um, and I was um, kind of, I was a religious watcher for the first two seasons probably and then tailored off. But, but, um, we had just read Lee Edelman's No Future, which is a a book, um, about, or where Lee Edelman talks about how we envision the, the child. And I put that in quotes, um, youth in a sense, um, you know, as a place to put all of our, um, very heteronormative, um, 
compulsory heteronormativity. Um, and so he argues that children in literature function as a way to keep the heteronormative structure alive, even if the heteronormative is not necessarily a structure in the text itself. So he cites Silas Barner and things like that. So I was looking at girls and the way in which girls rejects heteronormativity because the women are actively not two things, actively not trying to project their heteronormativity onto something like the child. And also they act kind of like the child themselves in a lot of ways in what should be their prime, like, you know, reproductive, getting married years. Um, and so that was sort of the idea of that project. And um, I read a CFP that was looking for um, articles about girls. It just kind of happened at the same, <laughs> happened at the same time. So Funny how those things work out, right? I sent my CFP in, and they said, this looks great, and we want it. So I um, cleaned it up and sent it to them, and that um, was accepted for their for their book. Awesome. And now Girls is off the air now, so you're probably not watching it unless you're binge-watching it. No, not <laughs> anymore. <laughs> <laughs> then probably not watching it because you've moved into – Full dissertation mode. I am dissertating. To, I was actually reading for my dissertation right before we started talking. So What were you reading? I am reading um, the contemporary perspectives on cognition and writing. Oh, yeah. interesting. So uh, you must be writing about transfer. Yeah, I'm writing about transfer for my dissertation. Um, and I'm trying – one of, part of my lit review is just – tracing where I see transfer um, and how we kind of see it laced through the process, social um, social theory um, stuff from the 70s and 80s, um, how that kind of gets us to where we are now. Um, so I'm going back and looking at a little bit of the um, cognitive side of things uh, and where sort of the cognitive psychology meets writing and transfer interesting i've got some things to talk about that uh i, I want to talk about maybe the way that that your program sees transfer and maybe i can talk a bit about the way that my program sees okay. transfer and we can kind of work that uh, work that together but first i want to point something out that i think is a fascinating a uh, decision that you made in writing your dissertation and is that is the decision to localize your project to your program. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that decision. Uh, was it a welcome decision? Did you find any pushback? Anything you want to talk about there? Um, so when I originally conceived of my dissertation, I was thinking I would do um, a multi – I would just send out sort of a survey or whatever to a, the listserv. And then I started thinking about it, and I was like – you know, I don't know those other grad programs well enough to talk about them with any kind of clarity or distinction. Right. And it would be a lot of me kind of being like, so what's your grad program like? What's your grad program like to other other um, students? So I talked with my dissertation advisor and he suggested that that I take a bird's eye view of kind of the University of Tennessee as a whole. And so I thought that that would be a really great way to kind of look at the issue of transfer and talk about it in depth without feeling like I'd stretched myself way too thin. And I'm, like I said, I can, I'm more familiar with the programs here. I have access to the programs here. So um, I have archives in the programs here. So these are things that I made kind of that decision a little easier. Yeah, 
That makes a lot of sense to me. You talked about the way that your program sees transfer uh, or utilizes transfer. And I want to talk a bit about the way that my program thinks about transfer too, but that's not that important. (laughs) Talk about how your program sees transfer and its graduate studies programs. Um, Well, it doesn't. (laughs) So that's kind of where my dissertation comes in is, is that I am providing what I think uh, is is an open area, a lack in sort of facilitating transfer for graduate students. Now, our first year writing program is a transfer program. So it's very much on helping our students learn to transfer skills from high school to college and then from college English to their other courses, like helping, you know, helping them be able to utilize and and apply the skills that they learn uh, throughout. And I thought that was a really fantastic way to like utilize and conceptualize writing as a tool. And it frustrated me, I guess, that our program, our grad programs don't seem to do that. There's not a lot of explicit writing instruction. Um, there's not a lot of structure in terms of really supporting graduate students. And if there is, it's specific to different programs in, you know, so like I said, like engineers might learn to write for engineering, but they certainly, we certainly don't have like a writing for English or something. Um, and there's not like a central place that grad students can go to be like, I have this issue, you know, so that's kind of my thought. Backing, backing up a little bit, you mentioned an implicit writing structure, and I think you're, you're obviously talking about your department specifically. Mm-hmm. What does that look like for you? What, what's the answer to that, that problem? Um, I don't know. I'm not at the end of my dissertation. Uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I can give you um, some ideas that I've been – that I so I just completed a survey and then interviews. And based on what I've got right now, which may not end up in the dissertation, but what I've got right now is that most students really, really, really want explicit writing instruction. They want to know how to write for their field. A lot of graduate students that I talked to are like, we're just expected to know how to do this. And we don't know how to do it. Everything we've learned, we just kind of wing it and hope it's right. Um, And that can be really devastating when you're a graduate student in such a competitive field, right? And in in a very competitive kind of fishbowl in your department. Um, And in a place where, you know, bees are like, you know, if you make a bee, you you reconsider what you're doing kind of culture. So um, just the the sheer uh, anxiety and terror (laughs) the grad students describe with writing was kind of what made me think that explicit writing instruction, like having workshops, having courses designed to teach you to write in your field, having um, university-wide graduate student workshops, um, things like that, that would be beneficial to graduate students. Even maybe just having a graduate studies, um, like, maybe department is too formal, um, but a graduate studies like symposium that just teaches you to be in grad school, any of those things like would be useful and are things that we don't really get. Oh, fascinating. Um, I think that that's a really interesting dissertation. And I'm thinking, obviously, about my own experiences in terms of what the type of um, writing classes or courses that I've taken. And I think you're onto something here, Kimberly, because I can remember the first class in my 
MA program, which was in 2010, one of the projects was to write a book review. Things like that and are, are what you're talking about. I've never had instruction writing a book review since okay. then. It's funny that you say that because my prospectus and my chair was like, you know, a part of this perspective is like, tell us why this is a personal project for you and why you think this is a relevant project. And I was like, okay, my first semester in my PhD program, my professor asked me to write a book review and I had literally no idea what I was doing. And I had, I went to JSTOR and I printed off like 30 and I was like, I guess I'll read these and figure out what it is. And I was so frustrated by the end of it. And I did fine. You know, I did fine. Um, because, you know, in graduate school, we're pretty smart cookies and we can put these things together. But I was like, it would have taken... I don't know, 20 minutes in class to just talk about what a book review looks like. Even yeah. that would have been helpful. I had no idea. The only thing I knew about book reviews was like the fifth grade paper bag where you like put the stuff on the side, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not what they want. So <laughs> I, I love that. I was so frustrated by the whole thing that um, I, I, that I, so it ends up being a part of my introduction is my own frustration with having to write a book review and not knowing what in the world I was doing. <laughs> so. so it sounds like, it sounds like perhaps genre studies is the answer here. Yeah. A lot of what I find graduate students having frustrations with is not being familiar enough with the genre to actually write in it. A lot of people, even, even um, in, within the graduate program itself, like a lot of students that I talked to were writing their perspectives and they were just like, I don't even know what a perspective is. No one seems to know what this is. No one can tell me what I'm doing. <laughs> so Sort of these, because there are a lot of hidden genres too in graduate school. That you oh count yeah. As you go, um, so so a lot of that kind of stuff, a lot of um, making uh, genre awareness um, a key in in graduate school, um, helping us utilize and transfer skills. Obviously, we've been able to do it in some ways, but helping us um, metacognate and be able to do that um, and take those skills that we've learned and transfer them outside of graduate school into a field you mentioned transfer and i want to make sure our listeners are clear you're looking at transfer in your graduate programs at utk but you mentioned that your fyc program is a transfer program those things they 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 combat right they they don't work together yeah yeah we teach it's funny because we teach in the english program we teach our students transfer day in and day out but there are no structures like that for us as graduate students which is really ironic for an english department (laughs) sure sure yeah Uh, the program that i teach in here at illinois state is a genre studies program but and we teach transfer in our FYC as like as a learning objective. Is it like a learning objective where you're at there at UTK? Yes, more so than um, so I try to articulate to my students that I am teaching for transfer. So we study genre and, and audience and, and purpose. Like I mean, and so they get a lot of genre specific instruction about like for for instance, right now we're writing um writing for academic audiences. So there, we are okay. learning what the genre of a research paper for an academic audience would look like. We just did an audience analysis of what an audience would look like, right? But the goal is that they can then transfer the the skills that they're learning about analyzing a genre and analyzing an audience and apply that to, let's say, if they're going into um, business, that they can then say, okay, like there's a genre of like a memo, 
I need to right. know how to write that thing. And then I need to know who my audience is going to be. Am I writing for my coworkers? Am I writing for my boss? Am I writing for, you know, um, someone who's messed up? <laughs> like, what, <laughs> what kind of writing am I doing? And how do I need to approach this audience based on these things? So, yeah, so it's more of an objective. But I try to be as, ex- as explicit with that with my students as possible so they know that, that I'm trying to teach them to transfer skills outside of this course. So you you're you say transfer like the word transfer yeah. is like a lot on your vocabulary and your pedagogy. Yes, it absolutely is. Um, because I want them to think about it. Like I don't want them it to just be them doing some stuff and then they forget that they do it. I want them to constantly be aware that what we're doing can transfer out of this class and should right. Like the skills that we learn in here should be something that you can use on other writing projects and other writing tasks as you go forward. Absolutely. I uh, wonder, and a quick indulgence again, does your pro, your FYC program have a, a accompanying writing center or with like writing tutors? And I wonder how transfer uh, is, is, is uh, conceptualized in that space. So we do have a writing center. Um, the director of the writing center, Dr. Benson, is also a, a one of the, on my dissertation. Um, okay. And so she works closely with our comp director, Jeff Ringer, to conceive of tutor training. So they do a lot of tutor training that teaches them to help their um, students transfer. They also take um, a pedagogy course here that, te- that where they have to write the papers that um, the students are asked to write, like the English 101 students are asked to write. So they have done oh. the same assignments that the students do. Now, I didn't take the pedagogy course here because I already had a pedagogy credit. This is just what I know from other graduates. It's a course for the tutors? Like it's an enrolled course? It's not like a workshop or anything? Yeah, so um, all, oh. of our, all of our MAs, the first year that they're here, they take the pedagogy course and they work in the writing center. So yeah. they're they're doing this those things simultaneously and they're learning to write the assignments that they're then helping students with. Um, so, and it's a, they have to take 505. They don't, I mean, that's a requirement for them. So, um, that's yeah. That's so cool. I think that's a smart idea. I really do. I, I don't, I, I don't, I'm excited because I don't think I've heard of something like that before. Yeah. We had, so when I was at UNC Charlotte, we had to take a course, a pedagogy course before we could tutor in the writing center, but it didn't really have much to do with the actual assignments that the 101 students were right. writing. Um, it was a lot of theory, which was fine, and I and I've used that theory since. But I like the way that we structure it here, where we ask the students, the MA students, to write the assignments that they are then helping students with, because it gives them so much clarity. Yeah. It really helps them be able to help the students when it comes down to transferring these skills. So I think anyway. <laughs> I love that idea. I'm thinking about you know. Um, I'm in a program with, you know, 70 plus graduate students and all of our FYC, you know, assignments are are different, right? Because we're creating them. We don't work off like a a templated syllabus or, which is interesting. Um, And and an entirely different podcast episode for sure. (laughs) But I wonder what it would be like if some of the projects that as a former, you know, a writing program administrator at, at the at the at the graduate student level what what how those assignments that I've seen come through that have either been really great or have been really disasters 
would be different, right, if they had actually had to perform the assignment themselves. I am I am I am fascinated with that idea. I really enjoy it, and I have also taken it upon myself to try to write some of the things that my students write because I. I think that the only way you know how to help them is if you know how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, we asked them to do a stasis debate where they analyze a, an argument. And uh, I'm teaching a writing about writing course. So they're um, analyzing um, a couple of articles from the Chronicle of Higher Education that are all talking about whether or not we're teaching composition wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I have been writing you know, kind of sample paragraphs of what a stasis debate would look like to kind of help them along and, and also to put it into practice for myself because, you know, I need to, I need to be able to practice what I preach. So. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I know, first of all, obviously I'm fascinated with your project and I could talk to you at all, talk to you all day about it. But one thing I, I can tell and that we've talked about, is this is a mixed methods it project. Is. And so I wonder if you could talk a little about about the decisions, the decisions, I guess, to make it a mixed methods project, how that's worked out for you in terms of your dissertating. The decision was that, so kind of practical, my chair thought that it would be make me more marketable if I could say that I had done a mixed methods, that I had worked in qualitative and quantitative work. And I agreed with him that that was the case. Um, and I also wanted to make sure that I had enough stuff to write a dissertation about because <laughs> it gets um, that can feel daunting when you start. So, oh, yeah, um, I surveyed I sent out a survey to every graduate student at the University of Tennessee that was enrolled. And then they had as an option at the end of the survey, they could agree to participate in an interview. Um, and if they agreed to participate in the interview, then I interviewed them. And so I, I interviewed, I think, 17 people based on the responses that I got and then uh so actually the actual collection of data did not take that long I can sit and do an interview all day I love talking to people and it's an area that interests me so you know the IRB process took forever Uh, oh yeah (laughs) yeah and so I'm working with live subjects obviously so I had to go get approval from the IRB which you know for obvious reasons and it just it took like six months so and I did anticipate that when I was writing my prospectus and kind of drafting how long things would take. So I kind of think of IRB as shadow organizations. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to pause and ask, do you know why it took so long? Is there a reason? Was there a rewrite? Something like that. Um, because IRB in our area at the University of Tennessee, because we're R1, is incredibly concerned with confidentiality uh-huh. and anonymity. Um, and so the way that I had structured my project was that they, the survey is completely anonymous unless you agree to take the interview. And then, of course, you have to give me your contact information, right? So they were like, well, then it becomes not confidential and not anonymous anymore. So they were, you know, we, there, was lang- there was literally language that I had to use that, that they wanted me to use specifically to make sure that there was going to be, this is going to be as anonymous and confidential as possible. There was also a lot of stuff about, like, so they have to approve all my survey questions. They had to approve all my interview questions. They had to approve all of my recruitment documentation, like all of that kind of stuff. So anything that I used that people would read, that had to be stuff that they approved the language of. Um, I had to be, the actual IRB like form that you fill out is also just a nightmare. Like it is long and involved. (laughs) 
I had to make accommodations for, you know, keeping things as as um, confidential as possible. So like a lot, literally a lock safe for for um, forms and things. So it, it just took out. It was just rigorous. <laughs> it was a rigorous process. Yeah. Did you have to buy the lockbox? I sure did. Did they reimburse you for that? They did not. Oh, graduate students being just taken advantage of and exploited all the time. I didn't even know where to find a logbook. I had to call my dad. I was like, do you <laughs> want to get the logbooks? I don't know. <laughs> I would just Google it. And be like, I get, I'd probably buy like the biggest one on accident too for a handful of papers. <laughs> I don't know. It, yeah, it ended up being like 17 pieces of paper that I have an entire logbox. So I was like, all right, well, whatever. I guess I can use it again if I ever have documents that need to be kept. Perhaps you could, perhaps you could put a copy of your dissertation in it and mail it over to the IRB or drop it off when you leave. (laughs) Uh, Derailed us here though. So you've got your mixed methods approach, and it sounds like practicality was a guiding, you know, principle there in the decision making process. But I I do want to make sure there wasn't anything else you wanted to add about that adventure and mixed methods. Um, I thought that it would be um more robust. Uh, and lead to a more robust analysis if I had both quantities, like if I had numbers to say this percent of people don't have, you know, explicit writing instruction or whatever. And then I could then talk to some students and say, okay, like give me an in-depth view of what your graduate studies program looks like. What is the writing like for you? Um, So that was another reason that I decided I wanted to do both. I didn't want it to just be, um, one or the other, because I didn't think it would be a full picture. Um, and I've, I have dabbled in the archives of the library, although I have not, um, taken a deep dive yet, but I'm, I'm starting in the, I'm in the process of looking up some older, um, graduate studies programs, um, handbooks and things, so I can get an idea of, like, what programs look like in the past. Yeah. what they look like now. So that is all the components of my <laughs> dissertation. A deep dive in the archives sounds like um, something that's going to take some time. So I wonder how are things working out with you in terms of dissertating and looking forward to the job market? So usually PhD students go in the job market in their fifth year. That's kind of the expectation. And They're I, at UTK? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I originally told my professor or my chair, I was like, all right, I can try. And then actually a couple of weeks ago, I was like, I just don't, I don't think I'm ready. I don't think this mm-hmm. dissertation is ready. I would feel more comfortable if I could devote my time to making a dissertation that, that I'm proud of rather than trying to rush through things just so I could get, you know, applications out in the fifth year. And if that means that I take the summer to finish, that means I take the summer to finish. We'll see what funding looks like <laughs> after that. Yeah. But I, I would rather do a dissertation that I'm proud of than than rush through and and turn in something that's just work, you know? I think that the key to success, one of the keys to success, like individual success, is embracing your timeline, right? And making sure that that when you need to take a little bit longer, that acknowledging that's okay. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of pressure on grad students to be done in five years, which I get because, you know, funding and, and they want right. to go get jobs and things. I get that. But I also know the pressures that we put on graduate students to teach and 
work on their own stuff at the same time. And it's sometimes not entirely feasible. So I don't feel necessarily bad about taking the time. <laughs> I don't think you should. <laughs> um, and I think anybody that would ever make someone feel bad is a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> so I actually, it just kind of um, plays into, so when I started writing my dissertation, I had just, I was just thinking about transfer. And the more I started talking to people, the more I started thinking about how shame functions in, in graduate school and how shame really impedes our ability to transfer writing skills. Um, so that has become more of a feature of my dissertation as I've gone through. And I think we'll probably end up being a, a large part of the discussion. But it's just funny that we talked about you know, feeling bad or whatever. It's it's the language of grad school is we kind of always couch things in this term in terms of shame and anxiety. I don't think I've thought about that, like shame. And I mean, I've thought about it because someone who's maybe experienced it. Right. But I don't think I've made strong connections to between shame and teaching, writing or transfer. And I'm glad that you're doing that. Yeah. So I think that this is one of the ways that this dissertation, this project will be unique because I'm trying to marry a conversation about transfer, graduate studies, and shame together. Um, so <laughs> while it is broad in scope, I hope that it will be useful and a way to think about graduate studies and graduate writing because I don't know that you can think about graduate writing without thinking about all the external pressures that are on us as graduate students that cause a lot of shame that then affect the way that we write and the way that we acquire and um, disseminate knowledge. So, yeah. Well, I think it is a broad scope, but I think you did, made a smart decision in localizing that at, at University of Tennessee. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add before I let you uh, off here to go be a tourist around campus for the uh, rest of the day? I think that I am good, um, unless there's anything else you have questions about. No, I think that this has been an excellent uh, interview, an excellent chat, and I cannot wait to keep up with you and uh, keep up with this project, of which I am, with each moment, becoming more fascinated with. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me, Kimberly. Yeah, no problem. All right, have a great day. Yeah, you too. Bye. Okay, rhetorical listeners, that was my chat with Kimberly Turner. I hope you enjoyed it. We wish her the best in her studies and going forward and look forward to seeing the work she produces. All right. Thanks, Kimberly. Perhaps you too would like to join us for an episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast as a part of their promotion series or as a emerging scholar. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a vast catalog of dialogues, a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge-making and rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. For scholars and practitioners... The Emerging Scholar Series offers the opportunity to gauge the future of rhetoric, writing studies, and tech comm by learning more about the research of graduate students and less seasoned scholars. So, if you're interested, you can visit our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can find us on Twitter. Reach out. We'd love to hear from you and look forward to collaborating. All right. 
it's cold, it's windy, and I've got a lot of work to do. So, until next time, be kind to one another, and always be listening for tomorrow.